You know, we have moments of rejoicing in this life, don't we? There are times where there are reasons for rejoicing. Maybe one of those times would be sitting across from our bookkeeper or our accountant and say, my tax return is what? Hallelujah! <laughs> but what about, what about these kind of times? Interception! He's on the 30, the 20, the 10. Touchdown! The Bears win! There are times of rejoicing, right? But let me ask you this. Do we have any cause for rejoicing in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ? Let's talk about that today. Amen! (laughs) First of all, let's look at a statement of Jesus to a couple of women who had just come and found that the tomb was empty. And we'll ask, did they they have any reason for rejoicing? And then we'll go on to ask, do we have any reason for rejoicing today? Let's start with Matthew 28, beginning with verse 1. Matthew 28, beginning with verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Did these two Marys have any reason for rejoicing? This was Jesus. One of these women, Mary Magdalene, had had seven demons controlling her actions. She was dominated by the power of darkness and Jesus cast them out and freed her from that darkness. These were women who were lowly esteemed by the rabbis of that culture. The rabbis said it was useless to teach a woman woman the law. Don't even bother with it. But Jesus, their beloved rabbi, he let them sit at his feet as disciples. And he let them follow him from village to village and be included in the number of his disciples. This was their Jesus. Did they have any reason for rejoicing? You know, these women very possibly may have witnessed in shock and in horror and in extreme grief as their beloved Jesus was shamefully nailed to a torture stake. They had wept over his death. And now he appears to them and he says, Rejoice! Did they have any reason for rejoicing? What about us? Do we have any reason for rejoicing in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus? Let's look at a couple reasons today. One is that Christ's resurrection has secured our justification. Two, Christ's resurrection has secured our union with Him. We are united with Christ spiritually because of the resurrection. Three, Christ's resurrection has secured our glorious resurrection. 
And then we're going to look at another point, another reason for rejoicing, which outshines them all. I'll let you try and guess what that is. We'll look at that fourthly. First of all, then, Christ's resurrection has secured our justification. What is justification? We could define it like this. This is from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he, one, thinks of our sins as forgiven and thinks of Christ's righteousness as belonging to us, and therefore, two, declares us to be just or morally righteous in his sight. Does that bring you joy? That God declares you to be just and morally righteous because Christ's righteousness is counted as yours? I mean, consider yourself. Think of yourself. I think of myself all the time. I know my wickedness. I know my rebellion against God. I know things in my past that I blush with shame to think about. But God has declared me just, and he has declared you just based on the righteousness of his Son, Jesus Christ, if you are in Christ Jesus and believe upon him. Is that a cause for rejoicing? Now consider this. What does that have to do with the resurrection? Well, the resurrection only made it possible, that's all. No resurrection, no justification. Resurrection, justification possible. Let's look at a passage of Scripture. Romans chapter 4, 23 through 25. Romans chapter 4, 23 through 25. First of all, and then we'll continue down through verse 2 in a moment. The Apostle Paul has been speaking about justification, about grace through faith being the means by which we're saved. He has given Abraham as an example. And now he says in verse 23, Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, not written for Abraham's sake alone that the righteousness of Christ was counted as his through faith, but also for us it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. If we believe in the resurrection of Christ, truly, sincerely, resting in Christ, trusting in his resurrection work, then the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. It is counted as being ours. Who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of or for our justification. So notice that. The resurrection of Christ makes possible the work of justification. God cannot declare anyone to be just and morally acceptable in his sight unless Jesus was raised from the dead. Why is that? Because if Jesus was not raised from the dead, it would signify that the work of redemption was not finished. It was not completed that Christ was still bearing the wrath of the Father toward sin. As you remember, on Friday, the skies grew black. The Father had turned His face from His beloved Son. And the Son was bearing the wrath of the Father. But Sunday was coming. And on Sunday, the Father beamed down upon His Son. The Father looked down upon Him and said, My Son, my beloved Son, you have completed the work. You were faithful unto death. And He raised Him from the dead. And it's because of that resurrection that we then can be justified in Christ Jesus. Is that any cause for rejoicing? on this Resurrection Sunday. And thus then, we have peace with God and we have hope of being glorified with God. Look down to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. 
through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We can have peace with God and be justified because of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ and His power. Is that a glorious truth? You know, if we want to put it into perspective a little bit in thinking about having peace with God, whereas we were children of wrath even as others, think about the fact that God is all-powerful. In that sense, He is a terrible being. In the sense of terrible power, awe-inspiring power. He is righteous, absolutely righteous, but there is a terror in His wrath being poured out. You know, we all probably recently saw pictures on the news or on the internet of a tsunami power. I remember watching as that flood of water flowed through Japan and it just kind of slowly, and it was almost surreal, wasn't it? It almost looked like it was... Maybe you're looking at a little creek and toys, cars and boats floating upon that. But then you see this ship that is dragged underneath a bridge and it shears the mast off of that ship and just crushes it under the bridge. There was nothing that could withstand that power. Cars weighing thousands of pounds being floated along in the midst of that. But that is not even close to the picture of God's wrath. Think back to a biblical example when God's wrath was poured out. And even compared to that tsunami in Japan, the time of the flood. There in that tsunami, like I mentioned, you know, it, it was almost surreal because it, it, it just flowed. And it almost seemed like it was flowing gently, but yet there was so much power and force behind it. But think about the flood. It says that the earth was opened up, the deeps. So there were earthquakes and it exploded and the water was rushing out of the earth. And then the canopy of water above the heavens burst down and every living person on the face of the globe except for Noah and his family who were in the ark were crushed under those waters as an act of the wrath of God towards evil and sinfulness. And that action in time and space here will not even compare to the wrath of God on the day of judgment as he says, Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, and cast into hell all those who refuse to bow before his son. Do we have any cause for rejoicing that we have peace with God because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? On the day of judgment, if we are in Christ Jesus, no wrath, pure love. Well done, my good and faithful servant. The glory. So we have peace with God because Christ's resurrection has secured our justification. Secondly, we have reason for rejoicing because Christ's resurrection has secured our union with Him. Oh, we talk a lot about justification in reform circles, as we should. It's a central tenet of the Christian faith and biblical faith. But there's also, in Scripture, mentioned literally hundreds of times that we, if we are saved, are in Christ. In Christ. In Christ. In Christ. In Christ. And that Christ is in us. We've been united with Christ Jesus. Theologians call this union with Christ. We are in Christ, therefore we're united with Christ. Now when we look at the scriptures, the phrase in Christ means different things depending on the context, okay? For instance, the scriptures teach that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1. Turn over there if you will. Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll look at 3 and 4. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. First of all, just think about that for a minute. Blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Because we're united with Christ. We have those blessings right now in the heavenlies. Just as He chose us in Him, there's that phrase again, in Him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. So, there was a sense in which we were in Christ before the foundation of the world. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that you were saved before you were even born? Not saved in the sense of regenerated and having faith and truly believing in God and accepting Christ Jesus? No. But was it as good as finished in the eyes of God? Yeah, that's what it's saying. It's saying that God was thinking about you who believe on Christ Jesus before the world even began. And thus, He considered you as one that He would unite with His Son through the work of redemption before the world even began. We're in Christ. Union with Christ. Also, another way this is used is that during Christ's life on earth, we were in Christ in the sense that some of what He did and in whole, His righteous obedience to the law is counted as being ours. So we were in Him while He was there walking the face of the earth in the sense of His righteous actions are counted as belonging to us so that God could declare us just. What a glorious truth that is. Look at 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30. It says here, But of him you are in Christ Jesus. There's that phrase, in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. So you see there, we are united with Christ Jesus and his righteousness his sanctification, His redemption, His wisdom, those things that He secured for us are then applied to us, but when He was living upon this earth and He exercised wisdom, and He grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man, when He was on this earth and He was perfectly righteous, Father, if there's any way that this cup could be taken from me, but not my will, but Yours be done. We were in Him. It's as if He is there doing those things on our behalf, even those of us who did not yet exist. And thus those things are counted as ours when we are redeemed in Christ Jesus. This might be a little bit like a hard, hard-working man who plans and who works and who saves so that he can have a family and provide for that family. His children are not yet even born. He doesn't even yet have a wife. But yet in one sense, it's all for them. And what he did, in one sense, they were there in him in one sense, even though they were not yet united with him. So we see here, that during Christ's life on earth, we were in Him and that His wisdom He became for us. His righteousness He became for us. And it's counted as being ours when we're united with Him. But now, moving more toward being in Him in the likeness of His death and His resurrection. Look over at Romans chapter 6, verses 1-14. through 14.
Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we die with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. So we are united with Christ. His death and resurrection have triumphed over sin. And thus we who are in him have been freed from both the curse of sin, according to this text, the curse of the law, dominion under the law, namely that we could not obey the righteous commandments of the law, thus God would have to pour his wrath upon us for our disobedience. We are freed from that, but also... Because of the resurrection work of Christ and being united in the likeness of his resurrection, we are freed from dominion to sin in this life. That means that because we are spiritually united with Christ Jesus, we are empowered by Christ and the Holy Spirit to battle against sin. A transformation has taken place. You know, I've spoken of this before. That is a true miracle. That is a true miracle. Now, I, I know how we use the phrase miracle, and in many ways, I can understand it. When we say something like that conception and gestation period and a little baby growing in the womb and then the birth, that that's a miracle. But you know what? In the technical definition of the word, although that is a glorious event showing the incredible design of an incredible creator, it is not miraculous. It is a natural event. Yes, God designed it. He put it into place. But it doesn't require any direct supernatural intervention by God reversing or going against the laws of nature to accomplish it, does it? Okay? For God to take you, or to take me, a spiritually depraved, dark, wicked, rebellious sinner, and to turn us into a son, and to unite our spirits with Christ Jesus, that is a miracle. That takes divine intervention. That cannot be accomplished in the laws of nature that God has decreed and set forth. That takes a miraculous work of God. And it's because of the resurrection of Christ in the miracle when he was raised from the dead that we can be united with him in the likeness of his resurrection and we can be seen both as just by God but also have the power given to us by God to battle against sin and not to be dominated by sin in this life because of the resurrection work of Christ Jesus. 
Glory, glory, glory. Now, consider this also, okay? We as individuals are united with Christ Jesus. And this is a spiritual bond, okay? You know, this isn't technological, theological jargon here that we're talking about. We're talking about a real action when we're united with Christ Jesus in spirit. Okay, this isn't just some high and lofty theological idea. This is real. This is ultimate reality that we're speaking of here when we're united with Christ Jesus. So as individuals, when we are regenerated, when we're saved, when we believe in Christ, when we trust in Him, when we rest in His Word, we're united with Christ Jesus. But that's not all. That's not the only person we're united with. I mean, obviously, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? We're united with the Godhead. But that's not all either. We are united in a spiritual bond with all others who are united with Christ Jesus when we are in Christ. The people that are sitting next to you right now, as brothers and sisters in Christ, if they are in Christ Jesus, you are united with them by virtue of the fact that you are united with Christ and they are united with Christ. What did Jesus say? That he came to make us one as he and his Father are one. To unite us together and to make us one. You have a spiritual family and a spiritual bond with one another because of being united with Christ which was made possible by the resurrection of Christ Jesus. And we're not talking about a social club here. We're not talking about a support group. We're not talking about even DNA. This transcends it all. DNA won't do anybody any good in hell. This is talking about a spiritual work which has united us together for all eternity in the body of Christ. Because of the resurrection work of Jesus. We are family. We have fellowship with one another. Because of Christ, our dear Savior. And that He was raised from the dead on that day 2,000 years ago. So Christ has secured our, resurre- our justification. Glory. Christ's resurrection has secured our union with Him. And thus also with the body of Christ. Thirdly, Christ's resurrection also has secured our glorious resurrection. And it has secured our life and being able to dwell with God for all eternity in heaven. Look over at Philippians 3, verse 21. Philippians 3 and verse 21. Who will transform our lowly body. Do you feel like you have a lowly body? We live in a culture that believes that we have, some people have godly bodies, high bodies. I want your bod. You know, it's just, it's nonsense. Ridiculous. Idolatry. Um, We saw it in the Greek cultures, you know, just the worship of the body. But we have a lowly body. And I think that most of us here know that. And as many of us, even as we get older, we realize how lowly our body is with the aches and the pains and the groans and who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to His glorious body according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things unto Himself. You see, when Christ Jesus rose from the grave, He rose with an incorruptible resurrection body. And this is saying that our lowly bodies, our corruptible bodies, will be transformed And it will be made like the resurrection body of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he has secured through his resurrection that we also 
will have a resurrection body. Now, it is true. Everybody's going to have a resurrection body. Some will have a resurrection body that will feel torment in hell for all eternity. But those of us who are united with Christ Jesus will have a resurrection body that will spend eternity in glory praising the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So let's consider some characteristics of this glorious body of Christ. The one that our body is going to be like. What's it going to be like? What's our resurrection body going to be like? Well, here's the pattern. It says we're going to be conformed to his resurrection body. So our bodies are going to be like his. So we can look at what his body was like, and we can know what our body is going to be like as well, right? Does that make sense? Well, first of all, though, let's consider that this body is going to be incorruptible. Incorruptible. Let's turn over to 1 Corinthians 15 for a moment. 50 through 58. Corinthians 15, 50 through 58. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So what is one characteristic of this resurrection body? It will be incorruptible. No cancer, no heart disease, no diabetes, no cellular degeneration, period. Right? Incorruptible. Incorruptible. No pain. All pain gone. No corruption whatsoever. So it's incorruptible, but you know what? It's not a disembodied spiritual presence that we're talking about. Okay? We're not talking about floating around in heaven as a glow, as an aura, as a spiritual energy field and source. No, that's not Christian. That's not what the Bible teaches. Not only will our bodies be incorruptible, but it will also be, first of all, recognizable. Let's look at Jesus' body. Luke chapter 24. Luke 24, beginning with verse 36. Jesus has appeared on the road to Emmaus where he spoke to a couple disciples. They go to Jerusalem, find the eleven, speak with them, and then in verse 36, Now as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. What kind words. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed that they had seen a spirit. Now this is Jesus after his resurrection in his incorruptible resurrected body. The body which he still has. What does it tell us in the scriptures? There is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. Jesus still has his resurrected body. 
this body that ours will be patterned after. And notice, they supposed they had seen a spirit. But what does he do? He wants it to be clear that he is not a spirit. He says, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Notice there. He's saying, touch me. Feel me. Recognize that this is me. My hands and my feet. What were in his hands and his feet? The scars from the nails. Now, does this bring up a question kind of related to a statement in that 1 Corinthians 15 passage? It is something we need to understand. In 1 Corinthians 15... It says, flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God. Then we have a statement by Jesus here where he says, a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. What's happening there? What's being spoken of? In 1 Corinthians 15, when it talks about flesh and blood not inheriting the, the kingdom of God, it is making the point that corruptible flesh, our corruptible bodies will not inherit ultimately the kingdom of God and live with God in glory forever. That's the point it was making. Remember, because it went on to talk over and over about incorruptible and the corruptible not inheriting incorruption or whatever it is. You know, I'm going to get things confused. But then it talks about us being changed in the moment, the twinkling of an eye, and we would be raised incorruptible. So the point that's being made there is simply the point that This body, as we are in it now, this body that breaks down, this body that dies, that's not the body that's going to live with God for all eternity after the resurrection day. Jesus is simply here making the point that I am recognizable and I have substance. I'm not just a spirit. So Jesus, he wasn't a hologram. Okay? It wasn't a hologram. It wasn't a a big spiritual projector projecting his image into that room. He actually had substance. He could be touched. They could touch him. They could feel him. They could recognize him. And that's what he's saying here. That I have form. I have substance. I am recognizable. So there we see that our bodies modeled after Christ's resurrection body will be incorruptible, recognizable, and we will have functional bodies. Real bodies. They can really move and can really do things. Notice what Jesus did here. This is kind of fascinating. Verse 40. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, but while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? I mean, he's going the extra mile to show them, hey, I'm not a spirit. You ever see a spirit? Eat a sandwich? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He had a real functional body. Now, it was incorruptible, but it was functional. It had substance. So will our bodies function and have substance modeled after Christ's glorious body. So we'll be able to recognize one another in heaven. We'll be able to move in heaven. We may even be able to eat and drink in the new heavens and the new earth. And if that be so, imagine the savory taste of that glorious food with incorruptible taste buds and perfect food. Do we have anything to rejoice over in the resurrection of Christ? Those of us who, who like to eat and like the taste of good food, right? What glorious things these are that our Christ has secured for us. So we likewise will have an incorruptible, recognizable, touchable, feeling, talking, eating, pain-free body dwelling in the new heavens and the new earth in absolute bliss forever and ever. And this is made possible by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we have any reason for rejoicing? that our Christ was raised from the dead. Now, I've given those three reasons, right? 
Christ's resurrection has secured our justification. Christ's resurrection has secured our unity with Him, our being united with Him. Christ's resurrection has secured our glorious resurrection. Now I mentioned that there was a fourth reason for rejoicing which outshines all of these other three. Let's talk about that for just a moment. First of all, consider the nature of joy. I believe it to be the case that, and I think the scriptures would support this through passages like 1 Corinthians 13 and others, that the highest, the purest, the most beautiful, the most honorable form of human joy is the joy that we human beings take in the exaltation, the glory, the praise, and the reason for rejoicing that others have. So consider how that might apply horizontally for a moment. A pure, a great, a glorious form of joy and an immensely godly form of joy is when a man delights, yes, in the work that Christ has done for him, securing all of these glorious things for him, but I think an even greater and purer joy is when that same man takes more delight in the work of Christ on the behalf of his beloved wife and his dear children, if God has granted them that forgiveness. So when we take glory, when we take joy, and we delight in that which others have to rejoice in or delight in, we are exercising a godly, pure form of joy. Consider in 1 Corinthians 12, 24-26, it speaks about the body of Christ. It says, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Because we're united together in Christ. Okay, but there's that horizontal level. Let's keep going. Let's not stop there. I think that there's even a pure even a greater joy still than a man delighting in, rejoicing in with pure joy the work of Christ on the behalf of his loved one, a greater rejoicing still when the people of God rejoice in the exaltation of Jesus Christ. (laughs) There is a glorious, glorious reason for rejoicing in the resurrection of Christ. Think about this for a minute. The scriptures say that he has spoiled the principalities and powers, making a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. It says there in the scriptures, as we look at the accounts of the resurrection, that he is not here. He has risen just as he said. He has ascended to the right hand of God, where he is enthroned in glory with the Father. And what does it say during that glorious passage? He has been given the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess, and things in earth, under the earth, everywhere, that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Think about that, my beloved brethren. We have great cause for rejoicing. Our Christ is exalted in the heavens. He's exalted. He is the victor. He is the one who has done it. He has accomplished the work. Can we glory in that work? Can we glory in it?
Glory. <laughs> Jesus Christ has won it. Listen to those demons screaming. See him bruise the serpent's head. The prisoners of hell, the Savior's redeeming, all the power of death is dead. Can we rejoice in the exaltation of our Lord Jesus Christ who has accomplished redemption through his glorious work? Let's pray together and then we're going to close by all standing and singing together, Low in the grave he lay, Jesus my Savior. He tore the bars away, Jesus my Lord. Let's pray. Father, we bless you, we praise you for the glorious work of Christ Jesus. We truly have incredible cause for rejoicing and I pray today that we are rejoicing the most in his glorification and his exaltation. I thank you, Father, for this opportunity to gather and to worship our risen, risen Savior. And I pray that you will bless us as we worship Christ and give us an ever deeper love for him and an ever purer joy in his incredible work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your uh, blue hymnals, number 206. 206. The angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door. praise you that our Jesus arose. Praise you that he tore those bars away. That we are united together with him. That we are just in your sight. That we will have that glorious resurrection body. And may it all be to the praise of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.